Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as Pastor Steve delivers this week's message. Strike me down if I lie, me no one be around when my tongue's untied. Every pie says it's okay. All the little things I say with my big fat mouth. My big fat mouth gets me in trouble. Now that's a song you're going to remember this week, isn't it? Yeah, add that to your top 40 list, right? We're talking, we're going to talk the next few weeks about that particular subject, um, one that we all, in some form or fashion, are, are understanding of. We know that there's some issues we need to address when it comes to this part of our mouth. Let me show you a couple things scripturally that will be foundational as we walk through this this series, Proverbs chapter 18 and verse number 21 says something very specific. It says, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Do you, do you ever stop and just think about how powerful and the potential exists between those teeth? The fact that, that what you say and what you do has the power, in this verse, life or death. You can give hope, you can give encouragement, you can bring life. And you can also bring destruction and, and hurt and, and all the things, either side, and it all just happens with what you choose to do with, with the mouth. That's how powerful it really is. Jesus went on to say, Matthew chapter 12, verse number 34, he said, and this one's going to grab us as we go through this series, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And another version says it very clearly, what fills the heart comes out the mouth. So those things that are coming out, whether good, bad, whatever, and it's not by accident, he says they originate from somewhere deep within. There's a, it's a heart issue that, that has to do with what comes out of our mouth. So we're, as we walk through this series, it's not just about, okay, let's get control of this. We've got to start here because that will change what comes out here. So we're going to be looking at, at those things as we go through this particular series. So hold on because we're going to have fun with this, but we're also going to learn some things. And we're going to at times be, ooh, that kind of stings a little bit because it is something that's big, a part of our, a part of our life. So we've chosen a song that's going to be kind of a theme. We're going to go throughout the, the series. And many of you know it uh, if you listen to Christian radio at all. And it's very clear about the words that we say. So this morning, I've asked the band to kind of show it to us. If you know it, fine. You can remain seated and just listen to it or sing with it or whatever you'd like to do this morning. But it just talks about our words. Words can build you up and words can break you down. Can... Now that's a song I hope sticks in your head throughout this week. And what a great um, goal, a challenge. That God, everything that comes out of this mouth, let it be something that builds up, something that uh, brings grace, something that helps people, and we have that potential. So we're going to start with that. We're going to talk about several things in the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about uh, things like lying and gossip and all. Today, here's our word. The big fat mouth issue we're talking about today is complaining. Uh, I already hear groans as we go through the audience. Let's just go to the scriptures and let's get an example. Um, starting in the Old Testament, we are introduced very early to the children of Israel in the second book. Uh, by their, they're known by that in the second book of uh, the Bible, Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, we have this nation of Israel who has been in, uh, in the, the country of Egypt now for about 400 years. And the most of that time, they've been slaves to the people of Egypt. As that slavery continued, it became very painful, became, there, that wasn't where they were supposed to be, God had a place for them, and they, were, they cried out to God. And let me show you where it starts, Exodus 2.23, the Israelites groaned in their slavery, they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Notice, God heard their groaning, and he remembered the covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and so God looked on the Israelites and we're concerned about them. I want to point out a word before we go on, and that's the word groaned or groaning as is stated in here. Now, that is just what you think it is. It's a, it, it's a word that comes from deep within. Something, when something hurts, we groan. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. 
And this is not the same word that we're going to see later is the word for complaining. The reason I point this out is I'm not saying that you just never say anything that because life's just going to be okay. So let's just stop ever saying it hurts. or ever say, That's not going to be part of our human existence in a broken world. Sometimes we groan. It hurts. Sometimes we looked at Romans chapter 8. The whole creation groans because it's not what it's supposed to be. We're in a broken world. We're broken people. Groans happen. But look what Israel did. And this is the thing we ought to remember. When they groaned, they cried out to God for help. They, they showed us the, early in their existence, they showed us this is what happens. When the groaning happens, we go to a God who cares, who listens, who's bigger than we thought. All these things we've already talked about today. So it starts off good with Israel, right? They groaned, and here's what I love. God heard them. He listened to them. He was concerned about their condition, and he moved in their behalf, which leads us to the next part. If you're familiar with the story of Israel, God does some incredible things for them. Over the next series of events, he brings ten crazy plagues to the nation of Egypt. And literally, by the time the last one is in, they're, they're saying, get out of our country. They actually push him out and they, they help him as they go along. So that's what happens. Israel gets out, but on the, very, on the very journey, within the day that they're leaving Egypt, after all the suffering and after all the groaning, they get to a point and the first struggle that they face is there, there's a Red Sea in front of them, and they hear that Pharaoh is coming behind them, and they, in their fear, they, and this is where it, it starts to change for them. Exodus 14, 11, when groaning turns to complaining, maybe that's what we would talk about Israel. Look what happens. Verse 11, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us in the desert to die? I, I, have, to, I have to add a little of my personal inflection here. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Now, I don't know if that's how they said it, but that's how it comes across to me, right? They're saying, Moses, why did you bring us out here? Why didn't you just leave us alone? And he, they actually go on to say, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Seriously? They've been groaning for 200 years now about, God, get us out of here. God, this hurts. Now he gets them out in the first sign of trouble, and they're going, why didn't you just leave us alone? I can eat. Do you hear what I'm saying? Complaining, right? It goes from groaning to complaining in a very quick moment, very quick movement. Now, if you keep going, they, that, this becomes kind of a, a pattern, something that happens in their life. But I want to take you to one spot, chapter 16 of Exodus. And the timing of this is very, very important. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. You see, what happens when they groan there then, that first thing, why didn't you leave us in Egypt? If you, were, if you know the story, which most of you do, or you've seen uh, Ben-Hur or Charlton Heston, whoever that guy is, who's, you know, Moses, right? And the Red Sea's part, God delivers them to the Red Sea. God takes care of them. Miraculous things are happening. And now, so what we have here is 45 days after all of that. We're talking just less than two months after all the great things God has done through Egypt, all the great things he did at the Red Sea. 45 days later, and look what the next phrase says, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You can circle that word grumbled. You could literally, that's the word complain. They murmured. They grumbled. They complained. They said this time, the first time it was, well, we don't, what's going to happen to us now? It's, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we had pots of meat. Now they're complaining about food. They don't think how they're going to survive. They got all these people. And this is the story where God brings the manna. He's going to supply for them. But I want you to notice, they're only 45 days out from all of the great things God had done. And they're already continuing to complain. Well, Go on down to the next few verses of this same chapter. Verse number 6. Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, and this is what kind of stopped me in my tracks this week. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling, look at this, against him. Who are we, they ask? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Is it possible, Christians, followers of Christ, that when I'm complaining, when I'm grumbling about my circumstances or the weather or the line at Walmart or whatever I'm grumbling about, that I'm not grumbling against those things and those people, but I'm grumbling against God? 
that when God hears my grumbling, he's not hearing me complaining about my circumstances. I'm complaining about him. Ultimately, God, you're not taking care. Ultimately, God, I'm complaining about you and who you are. That's, Moses takes us to that level, that our complaints are not against our circumstances and the people. Those are the ones that hear them, but there's someone else is hearing them. And every time we complain, it's as if we're complaining about God. I'm going to ask you a question today. It's on your outline. You'll see it on the screen. We're going to talk about it in life groups this week. So if you're in a life group, you're going to kind of dive into it a little bit. But just think through this honestly. What do you complain about the most? Be brutally honest. What, are the, what is the thing, as you look back, is the, uh, one of the things that you just, honestly, that just seems to come up a lot. And, and if you're, sometimes we don't even think about it, but if you were to think about it, what's the thing that you seem to complain about? One of the things that I've noticed in my life, and I, some of you can relate to this, but, but got my expectations... And God's reality don't always seem to be on the same page, especially the timing of God's reality. I think it should be going faster. I think that people should be doing this. I think it should be moving. And when it doesn't, what do I complain? Why is this? Why? And it's like this, is, and whoa, and mad, and mad, and mad. Why didn't you leave me in Egypt, God? I mean, that's me. What, what is it with you? What is it that you complain the most about, the poor me? Maybe it's uh, you're, you're not married and you complain because you're not married. Maybe you are married. <laughs> okay, so you, you take that for how it is. Okay, you complain. The money's tight. The house is too small. The, the, the budget doesn't work. My boss is a, is a tyrant. My teacher is boring. Whatever, what is it that you complain the most about? What is it that that's, maybe it's something as as Simple as bad weather or poor Wi-Fi reception, you know, or the Netflix just isn't working. What is it? What circumstance or what person or what thing is it you complain about the most? And, and think about that. Maybe the problem is not with that circumstance. Maybe the problem is, is we've taken our eyes off of the goodness of God and we put them squarely on me and what I like and don't like. And that will always lead us ultimately to complain and to grump, to to. to murmur about the things that are going on. Today, we're going to look at Paul's words about this very subject. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians, New Testament, (coughs) Philippians chapter number two. But before we uh, dive into this, we're going to kind of unpack a few verses (coughs) in this passage. Before we do, let's get an idea of, of the setting for these words, okay? If you're familiar with Philippians at all, or or the scriptures, um, you'll also know Paul said to several times, recorded in other places, that one of his life goals, one of his life ambitions, passions, he even refers to it as that compulsion, basically, is he wanted to go to Rome. Rome at that time was basically the capital of the world, okay? It was the centerpiece of everything, government, religion, everything seemed to kind of focus in Rome. And he wanted to go there. Think about the possibilities. I mean, this great apostle and what he could do in the capital city of the world, right? I mean, if he could make an impact there, the ripples would be, in, would be enormous. So he's got, he's got this goal, this passion. And he wasn't just going to go there to be a sightseer. He wasn't going to take a tour of Rome. He wanted, to, he wanted to go as a preacher, taking the gospel. That was what he said. I want my desire, I'm eager to go with the gospel and bring it here to Rome. That was, that was what he had just was, in essence, lived for, okay? And that's, you, you see that throughout his writings. Well, what we find is that Paul did make it to Rome. <coughs> he did get to Rome. But he didn't arrive in Rome as a preacher. He arrived in Rome as a prisoner. When Paul, the, for, in order for Paul to get to Rome, he was arrested, he was jailed, he'd been beaten, he'd been shipwrecked, several different things happened on the journey there, But when he arrives at Rome, when he's writing the book that we're reading called Philippians, he's sitting in some kind of a jail-type facility, chained to a Roman guard on a a 24-7 basis. So he's setting bad food, bad bed, smelly Roman soldier, 24 hours a day. Okay, so he's in Rome, but that's not what he expected. It's not how he wanted it. And the road there has been rough, and it still is, and he is now involved. And, and I, I don't know about you, but there would be a tendency, there would be a temptation to complain a little bit. God, why? 
God, I just wanted to come here and preach. This is a great city, strategic. Think of all the things I could do. Think of what could happen. God, let me go there and preach. And I'm sitting here chained to, to smelly Lucius here. And I can't, all, I, I, the tendency would be to, to completely say, this just doesn't work. This isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? All of those things. And right in the middle of all that that he's writing to, listen to these words. Philippians 2 and verse number 14. Listen to what he says. In the midst of thinking about where he's at, do everything, he says, without grumbling. Your version might say complaining. It might say murmuring. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Pretty simple verse. One verse, in fact, I'd like you to say it with me. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Uh, Do everything. Here's a, you want to memorize a verse of scripture? Here it is. Six words. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Six words. Can you do that? Do everything without complaining or arguing. You have just memorized a verse of scripture. Good job. That's how simple this is. How powerful. In fact, we could break it down to two words. Stop complaining. Is that pretty simple? Is that not what he just said? Don't complain. Do everything you do without complaining or arguing. In fact, it's so simple that maybe we miss it. And I think we have. We've forgotten how critical it is that God puts this in our hearts, that we should do everything without complaining. Now, why would Paul blurt out this kind of a thing right in the middle of all of this? Where's, we, we know the context of where he's at. Why would this come out? In, in, and there, you could go to the whole chapter, the whole book. You can go to the first few verses of this chapter, and he talks about the love and how we're to, to, to think of others. But I want to go back to verse number 12. Just back us up there a little bit to get kind of an idea. Before he says this, what has he said right before that? He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Think about what he has just said. He's given us an example, how we're supposed to treat others. We're supposed to have this attitude. And the attitude is supposed to be the same as Jesus Christ. What was Jesus' attitude? He, He was humble and he obeyed the Father. He humbly would do whatever the Father said to do. And he said, now, that's the same example. Live by that example. Live by, be humble and obey. And he said, and I I, I get that. You have done that. You have been obedient. And and you followed. And you want to do what God wants you to do. Not only when I'm with you, but even when I'm not. But notice what he says. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let's stop there. Because I want to make sure, circle those two words, work out. The one thing Paul does not say is to continue to work for your salvation. We don't work for our salvation. There's no effort that we... He's talking to people who have this salvation, and the word work out is the the phrase work out means it was used like in the mining industry when they're going to get, in in our world, getting coal out of the ground, or whether it was diamonds or whatever, you're mining it. Or you're going in the farming industry and you, you plant crops and you cultivate the crops. The goal is you have, it's all right there. It's just as you work it out, as you work into it, you begin to get the benefits. You get the coal, you get the crops. Those things come out. He's saying you have this amazing salvation, this amazing relationship with God. Now work it out. Do what God has and f- pursue what he has. Be willing to go where, and see the benefits that are going to come from following Jesus Christ. He said, so work out your salvation. But then notice the next phrase. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to, in order to fulfill his good purpose. He says, listen, you're working out and you're seeing this great benefit, but never forget that as you're doing that, God is working in you. There is this resource. There is something that God has has put in your life, this idea that that in you is the ability to do whatever God has called you to do. So what he's saying is you have a job. God has a a work for you. So work it out. Diligently do what God has called you to do. All the time we're relying on his strength. And so what's the first thing he says that can happen? Do everything without complaining or arguing. He says, listen, here's what God has in mind for you, this work. And now here's the attitude in which you're supposed to do it. When God has called you to do something, you can do it as in, oh, here I go again. Or you can do it without complaining and arguing. You can go through life and see the things facing you and they can, they can get on your nerves. You complain about them or you can, in the power of God, do all things without complaining or arguing. 
His point is very simple. Do everything without complaining. And before I jump into some of this practical, I, I have to just give a little bit of honest transparency here. I don't like this particular sermon at all. In fact, if, according to this, my mom would call this one of those steel-toed sermons. That's because she, she would always say, and she almost seemed to like this, oh, the preacher stepped all over my toes today. That was my mom's favorite phrase, right? Well, mom, you would like this one because this is a all-over-your-toes type of message. And when I heard about this complaining, and the more I dove into it, I thought, man, I do a lot of complaining. Almost to the point where I, I almost don't even recognize it anymore because it's just become a part of, it's, it's just complaining. And, and I have a feeling that all of us honestly will find ourselves seeing this and saying, God, I get it. And yet you tell me, do everything without complaining and arguing. So this is, a, this is one of those things that we can learn from if you're willing. But I'm telling you, it's, it's, not, it's not a pleasant experience as we're, as we're walking through this. So, so let's start. Why is it so important? Let me give you a couple reasons. First of all, complaining, scripturally, practically, is not a harmless activity. It's not benign. It's not just, okay, you say, well, sure, I complain. Everybody complains, right? We're all, we all got our issues. We all complain at some point or another. So it's, it's not that big of a deal. That's just, I'm just getting it off my chest, right? I'm just, I'm just expressing myself. So I got to do something about that. Let me, before we d- dive into what Paul said biblically, let's talk just practically a little bit. One, one thing I, I've learned about complaining, and, and the research will back it up. In fact, Dr. Um, uh, Travis Bradbury, in a book called Emotional Intelligence, he writes these words, or he expresses this thought, that uh, what, what complaining reveals is that as you complain, it hardwires your brain to do more complaining. He says the more you complain the more you will complain. You put your mind in that, in that mindset, and it becomes easier. It becomes something that's almost habitual at that point. The more you complain, the more it drives you into that realm of, of complaining and being negative and moving that. It's a whole mindset. It becomes what he refers to as a confirmation bias. You expect something to be bad, and it's bad. It ends up being bad because you've already set the stage for it. You walk into a room and, and you just have already said, I'm not going to like this, I'm not going to like this building, I'm not going to like this church, whatever. You've already walked in there with that mindset. Chances are you're going to leave with the same mind. You're going to say, that was horrible. That did because you go into it, your mind's already triggered there. Complaining does that to us. Here's what else I've learned about complaining. Complaining is contagious. That my complaining... And if, if I then allow that complaining, share that complaining, then it, it just, it, it allows other people to say, well, yeah, that, I, I get that. I, I don't like that either. And I, in fact, in this passage, I think it almost bears that out. The two words that he uses, uh, do everything without complaining and arguing. Charles Wendell puts it this way. He says, I think those are, are two specific areas. The word complaining is more kind of a private, individual. It's the word, because some of your translations will say murmur which is kind of what it is. It, it's just kind of under your breath, kind of, hey, hey, don't like that, kind of, kick the cat kind of a feel, just that murmur, right? And, and, it, and it's almost individual. It's almost, it, it's just kind of, a, but as that spreads, and I think Israel's a great example, that as Israel, people begin to complain, and we don't have, and, we, and, and that builds, what you have then is you have a, ultimately a mob reaction. You have the complaining of some individuals that turn into a, argument in it the word arguing literally is doubting and i don't think god can do this and we just we've we've accompanied this whole area because it started it's contagious it builds upon itself and i think we practically find that but look what paul says and i think this is powerful look what is at stake here according to paul's words if you go back to philippians 2 and and we're looking in verse 14 as he continues do everything without complaining or arguing look at this so that you may become blameless and pure Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Okay, let me stop. Does anybody, uh, would anybody argue that we lived in a warped and crooked generation? No, we know that. But he wrote this 2,000 years ago. So if it was warped and crooked 2,000 years ago, chances are it's warped and crooked today. And we would all pretty much agree with that. But here's his point. Do not do everything without murmuring, complaining, and arguing. So you become blameless and pure in the middle of this. Now look at the next phrase. Then you will shine among them, this crooked generation, 
like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that we did not run or labor in vain. Look what he says, and this connects all, starts with this idea of doing everything without complaining and murmuring. He said, you have an opportunity to not just have this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You literally can be a fiery orb that catches the, the, the attention of a dark world, and they can show that, you, that, as he said, you're holding firmly to the word of life, but you've got to do it with the attitude of not complaining and arguing. I hold on to the word of life, and I do it without complaining and arguing, and suddenly now the world has to sit up and take notice. They can't, they, and, and what he's saying, this you, you may become blameless. Yes, that's individual. You individually, or you're changing, and you will stand out. But think about that if he's talking to a church, and the fact of a whole congregation, if we learn not to complain, and we learn to, to work through the issues, and, and think what that can do in the middle of a dark world. The bright orb of the star of God's work in Calvary Baptist Church, what it could do. That's his point. You will shine like stars in the sky. But he goes back to with the attitude of doing this without complaining or arguing. I'm going to serve the Lord at Calvary, but I'm not going to like it. I'm going to gripe about it. I'm going to serve the Lord in my job, but boy, it's just a, just a pain. In the, and I, do everything without complaining and arguing, and you will stand out as a star in, in the sky. That's, that's what's at stake here. That's the importance. But we, we understand that, okay? It's not just a harmless activity, but it's more than problematic. Here's what I know. Complaining is also hard to stop. It's like it gets going, and as our doctor already said, compl- one complaint leads to other. You're complaining kind of built. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could have some kind of alarm system that every time I complain, something got my attention, Right? Maybe it's one of those shock collars. I start to complain, right? Okay, maybe, I, uh, maybe there's a patch for this thing. I don't think about what that could be. Here's what we know: it, complaining almost is a, seems to be a default mechanism for many of us. When things aren't going wh- well. It just seems to be the easy thing to do is to complain. Maybe it's fear, like Israel. Maybe it's doubt. Whatever the, but, but complaining seems to be the, the issue, and it seems hard to stop. But that, I take you back to verse number 13. Remember what he said about, right before he says, do everything without complaining and, and, and arguing, he says, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. If you're a follower of Christ, you can do this. Will you ever be completely complaint-free? I... I, I doubt it because we're broken people in a broken world. I think we're always going to struggle with this. I had one man on the way out of the first service said, well, I'm not sure I'm ready to give up all my complaining, but I'll think about a couple of them. You know, you know that kind of, I, I, don't know, I don't know where you're at on this. Can we, will we ever be perfect in this? We're going to always struggle. But remember, the, the power of the resurrected Christ lives in you. And so if it takes for you to be the shining light that God wants you to be, if it takes an attitude of without complaining and murmuring and arguing, you can do this. The Holy Spirit will. and it, there, So it is hard, but it is not impossible. The question comes down to, so, so how? Do everything without complaining? Boy, that sounds great, but that seems, seems quite large. How can we do this? Let me see if I can break it down in a couple simple, hopefully biblically practical expressions number one is this if there's a circumstance that you can change then do it there's something coming along that you're that's unpleasant that you can't that you're having struggle deal with whether it, it, it i know that we're not going to go through life and everything's going to be okay i get that it's going to there's going to be things that hurt going to be things that bother us it's going to be things that 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 we are uncomfortable with that we don't it's 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 not wrong to notice something that's wrong the, the problem becomes when that's where we stop. We do nothing about it. There's an Old Testament example, a guy named Nehemiah. If you're familiar with the story, Nehemiah was, at, was literally basically a slave, Persian, Babylonian captivity of Israelites. So he was the bearer, he cut, buried the, the cup to the king, but he found out that his hometown, his home country, the, the walls were torn down, the city was in shambles, it was just a, it was a shame, it was just a reproach. And when he heard about it, he found out all the pain, he was moved, it bothered him, he became to the point where it just, he, he couldn't sleep, he couldn't eat, it, literally you find that first chapter, it really got to him. So now he has a choice, I mean he's thousands of miles away, and so he could have very simply said, wow, that's too bad, boy I feel bad for my people. 
But Nehemiah took it the next level. And at the risk of his own life, he goes to the king of the, the nation that he's serving, the people that have taken him captivity, telling what the issue it is in chapter, uh, one of, uh, chapter 2 of Nehemiah, verse 5. If it pleases the king, he says, let him send me to the city so I can rebuild it. King, we got an issue here. I, I know my position, but if it pleases you, I want to go make a difference. But that's, that's the biblical way. If you can change something, then do it. If that means going to a, a class, you know, seeing a counselor, if that means uh, making a, whatever it means, when you can, if you can change it, then do it. Don't post it on your Instagram or your Facebook and let everybody know that you're unhappy about it. Do something. Forget about just complaining about it. If you can change it, then do something. Make a difference. Make a, that, his, the, the idea is rather than complain, if you can change it, do something. But here's the second thought. If you can't change your circumstance, then change your perspective. Biblically, we know that some things we can't change. We can give it our best, and we can, do, we can work at that. And, and so rather than complain, we're going to put our effort. But at some point, if we can't change the circumstance, look at what Paul does. Remember, again, never forget, Paul's setting... G- Attached to a Roman soldier in some kind of a jail situation in the city of Rome. That wasn't the way he had planned it. That wasn't anything. That weren't his goals. That weren't his ideas. His dream of preaching was not working out the way he had designed it to be. He's a prisoner. But look what he says in verse number 17 of chapter 2. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Okay, what Paul's realizing is there's nothing I can do to change this. These circumstances are out of my control. I am jailed here, and the Roman government, at the Roman government's bequest, there's not anything I can do about it. But then he makes this analogy. I want to, everyone in the room that was listening to this, probably understood exactly what he's saying. It may slip over our heads, so let's see if we can get it. In the Old Testament, they had, they had multitudes of sacrifices that were to be made, right? Often there was a lamb, a, a cow, something that was sacrificed for the sins and for the, uh, these sacrifices, that's the Old Testament. But there was another part of the sacrifice that when they would, they would often, when they, t- and I just have a little lamb here, just a, just a cute little guy, all right? But over that lamb, there was, a, there was a point when they would take, and often they would take some kind of, in their hands, an expensive liquid. Now, I'm just using water, but we're talking it was either some kind of wine or even honey was very rare, very expensive, something like that. They would take something that was valuable to them, this liquid, and while this sacrifice is still on the altar, burning, so you've got the heat, you've got the fire, they would take that liquid and, and they would then pour that out over the sacrifice. Now, maybe that doesn't mean anything, but just think about what I just said. When you take liquid and you pour it over the fire, what's going to happen? You're going to get that sizzle, right, for one. You're also going to get the smoke. And, and sometimes you read in the Bible as the, the smoke of the incense rose up to God. Well, think about how that is. Not only the smoke of the sacrifice, but as they poured that liquid and that, that aroma now raises to God. So when he says, when I'm being poured out, he said, even if. I am being poured out over your sacrifice, over what you do. In other words, he's saying, if if I have to pour out all part of my life, even if it means giving up everything I have, which was pretty much true. He had given up his his freedom, all these things at at the bequest of what God had in mind. If this means that I pour out everything, and he did, even if that's my lot, even if that's what I do, if those are the circumstances, my life being a a sacrifice for your benefit, if that's what that means, it's worth it to me. I can rejoice in this. I can't change my circumstance, but I can change the way I talk about my circumstance. I can change the way I see my circumstance. I can change my perspective on my circumstance. Because now what Paul is telling us is this is, this is literally, as, as the sacrifice is all a picture of the worship of God. In fact, Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, many of you probably recognize the verse 
says that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And he says, this is your true and proper worship. So Paul's saying, if it means that I'm going to pour out everything in behalf of doing what God has called me to do. And he was, my life, he was saying, is a living act of worship. I'm just pouring out everything to God. It's worth it. So what he's saying is, I am chained to a Roman soldier. I am all the, everything changed. But that really doesn't matter. I can't change that circumstance, but I can change the way I look at that circumstance. This becomes my way of worshiping God. My life is given to worship him in whatever way that he has said. That is, and in fact, this is a great perspective. If you go back to chapter 1 of Philippians, verse number 12, look what Paul says. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, what has happened to me, what is it? I'm... I'm in chains. I'm a prisoner. I've, I've been betrayed. All the things, all the things that have happened to me, shipwrecked everything. He says, but all the things that have happened to me have actually served to advance the gospel. What, what has happened in my life, I can't change the circumstance, but I can realize that there was a reason for it. It's actually advancing what God, and he goes on to say, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. What's Paul saying? Okay, think about this. Paul is saying, I, you know, you think I'm a prisoner. There is a guard that is chained. You talk about a captive audience. There is a guard, a Roman soldier, part of the palace guard, chained to my arm 24 hours a day. Now, people thought Paul was a prisoner. What if you had a crazy preacher attached to your arm 24-7? And this crazy preacher is going to tell you about Jesus as long as, so if they have eight-hour shifts for eight hours, he's going to give you a sermon about Jesus and the Christ and what he's done. And by the end of eight hours, you're going, no, get me out of here. And the next guy comes in, you're going, good luck, dude, because now you you can't leave. You're attached. But look what he said. It advanced the gospel because now the whole palace guard is aware of the work of Jesus Christ. How else would Paul have ever made an impact into the palace guard of the Roman government unless he was attached to a Roman soldier for two years? You see, Paul couldn't change his circumstance, but he said, when I look at it, God actually did something that wasn't on my agenda, wasn't what I would have chosen, wasn't what I even liked, but he has advanced the gospel in a way that I could have never done by attaching me in chains to this soldier. Think about this. What is it that you're chained to in life? Now, don't say your spouse. That's not the right answer, okay? The old ball and chain. No, that's not the right answer. (laughs) What are some circumstances that you're chained to that you really can't change? You can keep trying, but you really have, could be a hurtful relationship, could be a money issue, could be health. What are some things that, that you really can't change the circumstance? What, what is it that you're chained to? Could it be possible that God is allowing you to be in that place to do something for his kingdom? that you could have never done if you weren't chained to that uncomfortable situation. Paul said, I can't change my circumstance, but I know this is what God had, and and I'm just going to let him use me. He became a missionary to the palace guard. That wasn't what he planned, but that's what God chose to do in his life. Is, Is that possible that that's what God could do in us? Yes, do whatever you can. If you, if you can change the circumstance, work at it. Get counsel, get, work hard and pray. All the, but, but when you come to that point, when you realize, I've done all I can and I can't change this, then now I can complain, right? Because it's just, rather than complain, change my perspective and realize that this isn't an accident. That God is doing something and I can further his kingdom by doing what he's called me to do in this time. What if? Would it be worth it? If maybe this circumstance just helps you to pray more regularly? What if this circumstance brings you in a more deep relationship with Jesus Christ? Because 
before maybe life was too crazy and now it's, it's a lot more simple. But maybe it was just a matter of knowing God better. Would that be worth it? Would it be worth it that now maybe you have a different compassion for other people going through that and God's going to use you to, to help them and God's going to use you to bring others to Christ because of what, would, would it be worth it? Paul said, yeah, you know what, it, I can't change my circumstance. But God's got me here and he's going to do something and I, he's advancing the kingdom through my chains. Paul said, if you, you can't change your circumstance, change change your perspective go back verse 17 even if even if at this very moment everything my life is oozing out i am just everything is just pouring out of me even then yet i am glad and i rejoice with all of you not because why paul not because paul was anything other than he wasn't extremely special he just realized that life is not about me it wasn't centered on paul his story was not centered on him it was centered on god and when it's centered on God, then I can take whatever it is and I can know that God is working. I change my perspective because it's not about me and my comfort. It's about what's God doing in the midst of this broken and, and crazy, crazy world. Because Christ is the center of his story. I want to we'll talk just a moment, in just a moment about that focus a minute. But before we do, let me throw out a couple of thoughts that I know I've experienced and I think many of you have too. That we have kind of, as humans, we've come up with some some uh, ideas to help us through these, to cope with these times. So maybe we'll, we'll be a little bit more happy. And, and, and here's some things we use, and there's some merit in these. I'm not saying that they're just, they're bad. I'm just saying that they're, they're, they're not going to last. They're not long-term. And here's one of the first ones. When I'm going through problems, then I count my blessings. And I just think about all the good things that I have. And again, that's a good thing. Sometimes that stirs us and helps us to see, the, the, to see things differently. I get that. Or... Here's something we often do is we, we think of what I'm going through, but then we see someone else is going through a lot worse. And then we think, oh, I, I need to quit complaining. Because, uh, I mean, if any of you have been on a mission trip, you don't come back the same way. Because you realize, man, th- these people are living uh, in a month what I make in a day, you know. And they're just, and, and we get that. And so we always come back a little bit, a little bit ready. Or we're shaken up to the fact that we do complain a lot. We get that. But here's what I want to suggest to you. Though, as good as those may be in, in the initial form, the problem is both of those are temporary. Because what happens when that blessing that you're thankful for goes away? Now suddenly, now, now do I have reason to complain because my blessing went away? Or after a few weeks from a missions trip, you're, you kind of lose the effect. Or here's the other thing. What if I'm finding something and I'm not finding anybody that has any worse than me? You know, we're comparing. I'm going, well, yeah, but I got it bad. You think you got it bad. I got it. But what if you come to the point where I'm the worst guy on the block? I don't have it. So at some point, that falls short. It's not permanent. It's not forever. So he's not, when he says your perspective, we change. We're, we're not just saying, I'm just, you know, I've got it pretty good. And that'll, that, we're talking about focusing different. And let me give you two thoughts. It, actually, it's in one sentence. We focus, number one, on the purpose of God. You want to talk about something that doesn't change? We're talking about a God who, by the foreknowledge, before everything was created, he put things into place. We're talking about a purpose. In fact, if we go back to our verse we just read, Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We can trust, I, I can't trust that my blessings will always be there. I can't, I can't just try to go on, on the adrenaline of something else being, i got to trust in something that will last, and that is that God's purpose is real, and it doesn't move. It is always going to be his purpose. And that's where, in my mind, I get a little, I get a little mixed up sometimes, because I think, yeah, okay, if I knew what the purpose was, then I wouldn't complain. If God would just show me why, then I won't complain. You ever thought that? Oh, here's what I know. That's not true, for one. Even if I know what the purpose is, it's not going to stop my complaining. But here's what I'm trying to get you to understand. It's not about I stop complaining because I understand what the purpose is, but I cannot complain because I do understand that there is a purpose. And I may not ever understand it. This side of heaven, I may always wonder why God didn't do that the way I thought he should. 
I may always wonder why he didn't answer that prayer. I may always wonder. But here's what I know. The thing that doesn't change is God does have a purpose. He is almighty. He is incredibly, as we said, bigger than we thought he was, right? We, we saw that a couple weeks ago, Romans 8, 28. In all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes we hate and love that verse all at the same time. But the point is this. He has a purpose, and I can trust that. doesn't mean I'll understand it doesn't mean that he'll tell me, but I can, I can focus on the fact that even if I'm chained to a guard for two years, God's doing something. There's a purpose. And if I'm willing to obey and to follow him, he's going to make something out of that purpose. It's not knowing what the purpose is. It's just that, but the sentence goes on, focus on the purpose and the goodness of God. Two things that will never change. God's purpose will not be thwarted by anything that you face or any power on earth. Remember, we, are, we already, in the Romans chapter 8, that nothing will separate us. You can't stop God's purpose. But here's the other thing that never changes, God's goodness. Some of the things I face aren't good, but the God behind everything is always good. And what he has in mind for me is a good purpose, he is working for this, and that, that never changes. It's permanent. It never goes away. That, that God, is always, it, it, God is always good. There's a guy in the Old Testament that many of you recognize the name. Name's David. If you read a lot of David's writing in the Psalms, every once in a while David had his moments of complaining. I mean, David, there, there's a whole, whole section of Psalms basically called the Psalms of Lament or the Psalms of Complaints, right? He, he, but, but what you'll find in most of the cases in those Psalms, somewhere in the middle of that Psalm of Complaint, he also then turns it to understanding the focus on God. And you see the direction begin to change. Here's one that, that I love. Psalm 103 starts off with, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all that's within me. Verse number 2, he says, Let all that I am praise the Lord, May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals my diseases. He redeems me from the death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills me with life and with good things. That's good stuff. Love it. Thanks, David. You're turning around. But here's what I want you to kind of notice. David isn't praising the good things. He's not even praising the forgiveness or praising the redemption. He's praising the God who gave those things. It, it's not, because sometimes some of those things on there like forgiveness and redemption, I don't feel that. I don't feel forgiven. I, I feel less than redeemed. I, so so when, if I'm going on what I'm feeling or what I, then, then that's, that's not going to feel good and that's not going to stop me from complaining. But when I realize that God gave me forgiveness, that God is a fact, that God is real, that God is the one who redeems and, and heals, when I give him praise because he is good, because of all that he has done, I'm praising him, I'm not praising the things, I'm praising the God who gives them. Then I'm starting to recognize that it is possible to do all things without complaining because God's purpose never changes. God's goodness never changes. In the midst of whatever I'm going through, I, I can do it without complaining because those things will always be true. Paul's change a Roman guard. And yet he tells us, you can do all this without complaining. Whatever you're going through, whatever that, that is that causes you the most complaining, it is possible to begin the steps, to begin to, will, will you change overnight? Probably not. But could you take a step this week? Could you take one of those things you complained about or you concurrent complaining about, whether it's in serving the Lord or just in life or whatever it is, and take one of those things and turn them into a, I praise you, God, because of who you are. If you turn one of those complaints into a praise, one at a time, you can begin to see God changing that attitude in the hearts of us who are known for our complaining. Even if, the, the verse says, even if my greatest prayers never get answered, 
even if this never changes the way I think it should. Even if I'm serving and no one notices, or I'm doing this and it's just hard, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, I'm glad and rejoice. Do everything without complaining. Before I go away, I wanted to talk about this picture we have. He said, if I'm, even if I'm poured out, and he was talking about his, his life being poured out for the good of even the Philippians he was writing to. And even if that happens, he said, I'll rejoice and be glad. But do you recognize that this whole picture that he's talking about, the greatest picture we have of this is when God gave his son, Jesus Christ, for us. And when, when God sent his son because of his love, he sent his only son to this world. He sent him to die for the sins of the world. And for Jesus to do that, he had to pour himself out completely. So when you think of something being poured out, for what it, Jesus poured out everything he was. In fact, 2 Corinthians says that though he was rich, he became poor so that we could be rich. He gave it all. And he did that for your salvation. He did that for your forgiveness. You can't come to God unless you come through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He poured himself out so that you could know life now and forever. Now, Paul said, I, when I, even when I realize I'm being poured out, I, I do it and I can still rejoice. There's a verse in Hebrews that said, Jesus endured the cross looking forward to the joy that was set. Jesus poured himself out with joy knowing that that would mean you could come to his Father and find forgiveness. He poured himself out for you. So an audience this size, I want to make sure we ask the question, have you ever received the gift that Jesus purchased by pouring himself out for your sins? When he died on the cross, he was giving himself for you. Have you received that gift? If you have, and even if you are being poured out and all of everything is being poured out from you and nothing even if is it still possible that with the spirit's power within you that we could stop this big fat mouth from complaining with the power of the holy spirit we can live in that thing